0: A couple of years ago, I was introduced to the British comedian, author, and actor Russell Brand. And Nineteen years ago, Russell somewhat famously hit rock bottom due to his struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. He reticently joined an AA group and began to apply a method known as the 12-step program to address his afflictions. Now, at first, Russell, like many others, side-eyed the 12 steps as overly preachy and too ecumenical. However, he applied the technology assiduously one day at a time, and he's been clean ever since. Now, when I first met Russell, I didn't think the 12 Steps had anything to offer me. Now, Perhaps like you, I've never suffered from addiction to the most obvious isms, including booze or crack or heroin, nor have other culprits such as gambling, shoplifting, or sugar binging degraded my life. However, as Russell and I became friends, he taught me that this methodology was extremely protean in nature and could be applied to myriad attachments, and peering inward, I began to notice subconscious negative behaviors over which I seemed to have little control. As Russell puts it, these proclivities were an impediment to becoming the person I was born to be. For example, I too often required the approval of others. I overly identified with my job. When I wasn't working, I felt anxious. I checked my phone way too much and reveled in the dopamine flood of likes and comments. These more prosaic addictions, along with codependency, Instagram, shopping, and chocolate cake are in some manner more insidious forces as one can limp through life without ever addressing them. The 12-step program is a simple methodology that you can apply to a full range of behaviors as a means to liberate yourself from attachments. Now, seeking external agents to assuage discontent is, in a way, reflective of a profound desire that we have to feel greater connection in our lives. However, looking for contentment outside ourselves yields ephemeral returns. How many times have you thought that if only and only if I get this job or this house or this boyfriend, then, then I'll be happy. But almost as soon as you cut the ribbon off the box, you are already plotting the next conquest. Buzzes of all kinds wear off. For long lasting satisfaction, we need to look inward. To address our multifarious addictions, Russell and Commune have created a program that draws from the wisdom of the 12 steps and applies it broadly as a tool for awakening. Now, over the next hour or so, you will be immersed in the first three steps of this program. Russell is, of course, captivating, insightful, hilarious, and occasionally profane. And you can watch Russell's full course on Commune with a 14-day free trial. Just go to onecommune.com trial. This will give you all access to more than 80 of our courses, including Russell's program. That's onecommune.com trial. So without further delay, here's Russell Brand on recovery.
1: give you a bit of an overview of what you can anticipate and expect, although anticipation and expectation are some of the things you're probably going to have to deal with. They're probably the very kind of things that mean you have to acquire courses like this because you're living in a constant state of expectation. 12-step recovery for me is nothing less than a system for altering my consciousness, for creating a state of awakening. The thing that's ingenious about it is it was developed and evolved for the most obvious forms of addiction such as alcoholism and addiction. If you're a crackhead, a smackhead, an alcoholic, it's a pretty obvious problem. The social, medical, criminal, judicial problems that you'll encounter make it clear to you that your life is gone wildly awry, astray, that you are dealing with complexity, conundrum and calamity near consistently and constantly. But whether or not you're a person in recovery right now, working the 12 steps around behaviours or drugs or alcohol or a person that's curious about how you could evolve a new perspective, this course is gonna give you the tools and explain the methods in a manner and a language that you will understand. Although this is like a um, quite colloquial, chatty and casual dialectic between me and you right now, we're dealing with nothing less than the system for inducing enlightenment. I don't want that to sound overly grandiose, but I do want you to know that what the 12 steps does is it takes you from a state of unawareness to a state of awareness a state of unconsciousness to a state of consciousness in my own life this is how it hit me the way that the 12 steps hits most people that work it I was in a rock bottom state of absolute desperation, a heroin addict, a crack addict, an alcoholic. Every aspect of my behavior was problematic. It was clear that I needed intervention. A curious thing that I'll mention at this early stage of the journey that we're on together is that what I was looking for curiously, and this is not something that I'd have been able to appreciate it if you would have plainly told me what I was looking for was an awakening, a spiritual connection. Seems like an odd way to look for a spiritual awakening and connection. Sitting around in doorways, doing smack, hitting up the martel bottle, pipe hitting, boozing, whoring, seems like an odd way to look for God, to look for oneness, and indeed it is. But the reason the 12 steps works and the reason that I believe it was discovered in relation to substance misuse and alcohol misuse is because when we form an attachment to an object, whether that's a physical object or a kind of a neurological compound suspended in our own mind, meaning I suppose that my relationship with my work is an object, my relationship with my wife can become an object in my mind. If that relationship is not Conscious, aware, and functional, it has the potential to cause me pain. And often, and this is a curious thing, which I believe is where the universality of the 12 steps comes into its own, is I nominate external things to be salvation, to redeem me, to make me feel better about myself. Now that is, um, that's clear and obvious when we're dealing with drugs and alcohol. So it's no coincidence that the 12 steps was devised and conceived around alcohol because when a person's got an attachment to drugs and alcohol, the consequences are obvious, the behaviors are observable. It's a clear and evident problem. The way that this program functions mechanically is that instead of regarding a problem in your life as a sort of a sign of deterioration or a wound, it becomes a point of initiation and inauguration. It's a kind of, we make a trans a mental translation rather than seeing a problem as uh, like a a deficit or a wound. We see it instead as an invitation. How that functions for me is as soon as I'm like, agitated, discontent, irritated, or afraid. I don't see that as like something erroneous or something that's gone wrong with me. I see it as a signal, something that I need to read. So like when you're excessively drinking or you're excessively taking drugs or you're looking at a lot of porn or you're spending a lot of money, the fuel behind it is a craving a yearning, a desire to acquire, a, a forging of an attachment to external phenomena to ameliorate an inner malady, like and the relationship between this, the identification of this problem and a spiritual experience is uh, like almost a total one. It can be difficult to see alcoholism or endless spending or obsessive watching as pornography, as a hankering after a spiritual experience. But in a very obvious way, what you're trying to do is make yourself feel better. And that is a spiritual issue. The function of spirituality is to amend the way that you feel, is to address a kind of um, a disalignment, a disjunct between your inner and outer lives. So Once you've admitted, I'm not happy in my marriage, I'm not happy in my work, or whatever it is, once you've admitted, this is a problem for me, that's an opportunity for an inhalation and a moment of reflection. I've got a problem. It's... But like a lot of people won't do that. Have you noticed that in your own life? A lot of people are like, no, I'm very happy. I'm, really, like, I'm happy in this relationship. I'm happy in this job. I'm happy drinking. I'm happy continually getting in fights. Well, the, the 12 steps that, as a point of initiation does require an honest appraisal. It, without that, obviously you can't proceed or progress because you're not open to the possibility of change. See, the, the, the very simple thing is that this is a program of change whilst it does involve some quite um potentially esoteric ideas about you know, consciousness and dare i say it god it it is underwritten by the possibility that by the optimistic possibility that your situation that your life that your problems can change once you've admitted you've got a problem there is a opportunity for change So whether you want to improve your understanding of 12-step recovery for application in obvious and already identified problematic areas such as drugs or alcohol, sex addiction, porn addiction, gambling, spending, excessive eating, not eating enough, or, and this is crucial, just a vague sense of unfulfillment a general sense of disconnection or discontentment, then I believe that this course is gonna be helpful for you. Step one, conventionally put, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and that our life had become unmanageable is your honest entry point into a 12-step program, given that our remit and the way that we're approaching our work is that we want to be able to apply this program the way that I do across every aspect of our life. That could be a severe addiction issue. You could be watching this thinking, I'm drinking too much, my drinking is ruining my life, I need to change it. Or it could be something more vague and difficult to identify. I don't want to be in relationships that make me feel bad about myself. I don't want to be working in a job that's making me feel inferior. But whatever it is that you're working on, the candid and honest admission that you have a problem and that your life is unmanageable as a result of that problem is our entry point. That Honest acknowledgement, mentally in my mind at least accompanied by the sound of a record scratching off. A point of arrest. I don't want to proceed any further down this path. When I interpreted the 12 steps, I changed it from a rather wordy, articulate and brilliant appraisal of powerlessness and unmanageability to the more succinct and perhaps vulgar, are you fucked? if you're watching this video if you've subscribed to this if you find yourself in a position where you're unhappy and lost this is the step one moment the moment of i'm i can't cope with this anymore i don't want to continue down this path anymore so whatever it is you're dealing with there is a a further requirement here and that requirement is for specificity I reckon that the reason that the twelve step program was initially formulated around alcohol and then drugs was that when there is a clear and obvious object like alcohol and alcoholism, it becomes it's easy to diagnose and it's easy to not easy because it's like incredibly complex and painful, agonizing and difficult and a lot of people can't ever, ever do it, but at least it is clear that the the alcohol is the thing that needs to be removed from your life. That, that your problems are clustering around your misuse of drink. When I think about my own, like, my own step one around crack, heroin, and alcohol, firstly, actually, it seemed like a bloody difficult thing to accept, like, when people said, The reason that you're getting in these, the reason that you're getting in trouble in relationships, the reason that you don't like yourself, the reason you've got low self esteem and that you're continually getting in trouble with the police and that nothing's ever working out for you, is because you're drinking and you're taking drugs. Are you willing to one day at a time stop drinking and taking drugs? For a long time, the answer was no. I wasn't willing to see that as the problem. I wasn't willing to embark on a journey of change. Having done that, and having seen the success of it, I'm now willing, in pretty much eventually almost any situation, to take a 12 step journey. Because, you know, as soon as you've r- removed alcohol and drugs from your life, if that's the problem you're dealing with, you are confronted with the myriad other problems in your life that are required to change. And these f- things are no longer external, they're internal issues. So what we have to do when taking the step one is identify what it is you want to change. I've worked step one around drugs and alcohol. I've, I have admitted, right, yeah, my drug and alcohol problem is I'm powerless over it, I can't control it. Once I start, I can't stop. The consequences of me drinking and taking drugs are creating unmanageability, this word unmanageability can be understood as, like, once I start drinking and taking drugs, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know what the consequences are going to be. I don't know when I'm going to be able to resume control of my life again. It becomes a kind of helter-skelter. Like, when applying it to something more insidious, less obvious, like I'm powerless over my use of the phone and my life has become unmanageable, It's kind of, look, there's no doubt that it's more subtle, but I'm still looking at the phone when I don't want to look at the phone, and it's still making me feel not good about myself. I don't feel good at myself if I'm staring at my phone instead of talking to my children. I don't feel good about myself if I'm, like, unconsciously and um, sort of kind of somehow my volition is being usurped by a bloody device that I've paid for. That doesn't that doesn't feel good. That's an, another thing that's very beautiful about the 12 steps is this learning to recognize my own intuition and my own feelings as being somehow valid. The point that I'm feeling unhappy or dissatisfied, it's not something that I need to suppress or ignore or get over. It's the beginning of letting go of something. It's the beginning of changing something. I am working this program at the moment around phone use, I'm working it around the way that I behave in professional environments. I'm working this program around the way that I treat my wife. So the first thing I have to do is acknowledge that there's a problem and that my life is unmanageable, that in regard to that particular issue, I'm fucked. So at this point in working the course, you do have to clearly identify what it is that you wanna change. That's not to say that you can't, like me, work it across multiple issues. That's what I do. I'm right now working it across multiple issues. Issues, but you do need to be specific. You do need to say, I want to change my relationship with food. I want to change the way I talk to my partner. I want to change my relationship with my sexuality or my sexual behavior. You do at this point need to identify it. It's not enough to say my whole life's a mess, I'm generally unhappy. Because you're not that doesn't give you a sufficient purchase for the scaling of this problem you need to identify okay what i'm dealing with is this so like you know just to give you an idea of the scope that it can be worked in you know for me initially it was cracking heroin i was willing to admit that it was a problem i had no choice but to admit it was a problem and that my life had become unmanageable and now i'm working it around my use of technology negative thinking you know like it can become much subtler and it is equally successful. It's obviously harder to work an abstinence programme around something as involuntary as negative thinking. But what I can do is recognise, oh, I'm habitually engaged in negative projection and anxiety. That's a problem, I wanna change it. Now, once I've done that, you know, then I can, if I choose to, embark on the rest of the steps. I can accept the possibility of change. I can ask for help. I can inventory. I can then observe the patterns that uh, uh, recur in these situations. I can see if anyone else has been harmed as a result. I can stay aware. I can recognize that a component of change is going to be prayer and meditation, a changing of my perspective through spiritual practices, and that, The end result of all of this is to become of service, to become of use, to ultimately change my perspective from a kind of infatuation with self-fulfillment to a willingness to be of service to others. Accompanying this course, you have some worksheets and materials that you can use uh, along with this video. I mean, if looking at my face on a laptop or a phone isn't sufficient to deliver you to salvation, I begin to wonder what the hell the problem is. But there are also some written materials. I just want to talk you through how they work. Like, so firstly, we identify what we want to change. For the purposes of this exercise, my example is like my use of tech like even i can be even more specific than that looking at my phone in the morning first thing when i wake up the reason i'm the reason i'm using that even though it sort of seems a bit minor and trivial is that i'm going to operate on the assumption that if you're <laughs> sitting there withdrawing from heroin or on your way to score more that for a start that you will require additional medical psychiatric and therapeutic support but also somehow The more subtle the problem, the more the efficacy of the program is demonstrated. So like in my case, I wanna change my phone use. I wanna not look at it first thing in the morning. I I don't want my phone to be given the job of making me feel better about who I am. I recognize that's an inappropriate function to give a, a piece of technical equipment. Next question is, what pain or fear do I associate with change in this area? Now that sort of might seem like rather grand for such a trivial route of inquiry, but the pain and fear that I associate with the pain and fear that I associate with like not looking at my phone first thing in the morning is that I'm kind of confronted with the general and vague sense of anxiety that I wake up with every day that I try to negate with some external distraction. If I look at my phone, maybe someone will have sent me a text message telling me that I'm fantastic. Russell, you're terrific. You can now rest assured, go back to bed, turn over, bury your face back in the pillow. You're absolutely fine. There's nothing about you. You need to That In reality, I know that there'll be things on my phone that annoy me, work emails, and suddenly I'm not facing the day. I'm not embarking on my day thinking about how can I be useful? How can I help others? How can I be a better dad today? I'm sort of already bogged down in the in minutiae. So the pain and fear that I associate with change is that if I wake up in the morning and I've not got my phone, then I've got no excuse to not meditate, for example, that I, I'm going to be confronted with this sort of Vast, open, ice of every day. Like, I like to anchor my day to something minute and quotidian. There's only so much horizon I can bear. So that's the fear that I associate with change in this area. What pleasure am I getting out of not changing? The pleasure I get out of not changing, I guess like with all forms of addiction, and this is the reason that addiction is a perfect metaphor for a material attachment, is that, the. With an addictive behavior, it's like this is a sort of an experiment that could be run in a lab with a rat. You reward, like I'm rewarded about one in every five times that I engage in an addictive behavior. It was the same with drugs, it was the same with sex, same with pornography. Once in a while, it's fantastic, it's terrific. But the rest of the time, it's pretty dismal and disappointing as all forms of a material attachment ultimately will be. There is no way that I can make myself feel spiritually fulfilled or even comforted by looking at a phone or smoking crack, not long term, eventually it will lead me to a point of disappointment and dismay because these objects are not capable of addressing an inner malady. What pleasure am I getting out of not changing? The pleasure I'm getting out of not changing is once in a while it works for me. Once in a while someone will text me and say you've got this job or you're terrific. It's never enough and in a way the problem even with the positive outcome is it it. En- Engages me for longer in a behavior that isn't ultimately beneficial. So I'd be better off to, like, as soon as I consciously engage with that behavior and I'm willing to change it, the possibility of real change, of real improvement begins. What will it cost me if this doesn't change is the next question. Like, and again, you know, if you're dealing with heroin or you're dealing with Paying sex workers and like when you're in a a marriage or you're dealing with like looking furtively at porn Continually, it's kind of more obvious to sort of identify what it's gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you your self-esteem It's gonna cost you uh, uh, Your relationship with your partner, but like when it's like looking at the phone Well, you know, it's less obvious, but it's still evident what it cost me is my peace of mind It cost me my autonomy. It cost me freedom but I'm designating an object as a kind of, uh, as a stimulant for happiness. I suppose that's why the addiction metaphor is a good one. Stimulus response as a means for living. This is the way that consumerism and materialism operate. This is why I think addiction is rife, because we are continually... Taught that we can fulfill ourselves, improve ourselves, advance ourselves with the acquisition of an external material object or through the validation and approval of other people. That for me has the same sort of paradigm shape as here is some heroin, I've taken the heroin, here is some alcohol, I've taken that alcohol, here is pornography, I've used the pornography. Wherever you are on the scale, if you're using an external object as a uh, tool to ameliorate in a malady, you're engaged in addiction. Any behavior that you're engaged in that you want to change and when you try to change it or try to stop it, you can't, I think can rightly be referred to as addiction. To keep it specific, again, what benefits can I have? What benefits could I expect from changing my phone use? Again, if you're talking about stopping drinking alcohol, the benefits are obvious. I'm going to save money. I'm going to feel healthier. I'm going to lose weight. I'm not going to feel that constant despair of alcoholism, vomiting and belching my way for every day. When it's something seemingly minor, but like phone use, what benefits will I get? Well, you know, the truth is that I have begun to change that behaviour. For one week, I stopped charging my phone in my bedroom. I charge it downstairs. I don't look at it first thing in the morning. And what happens is, like, I feel... I feel, in a sense, it's... With a subtler form of behavioral change, like not using my phone to soothe myself in the morning, the benefit I feel is not immediately obvious. The thing that I felt most immediately was a bit inconvenienced and a bit put out by not having my phone there. But two or three days in, I started to feel a kind of relief. None of us feel good about how we've been inveigled and hypnotized by technology. And having, for me, as a person that works a 12-step program, recognizing that i can alter my behavior around something as seemingly minor as that it's fulfilling it, there's a relief in it so that one of the benefits are that in the morning now when i wake up i'm thinking about dealing with the people i live with and love not dealing with a fucking telephone so for our purposes today what we want is a clear understanding of what it is we're willing to change before we fill out our worksheets, which, you know, I'll be doing in my own little life, you'll be doing over there in your world. Before we embark on that, let's take a moment to consider and to commit to what it is we want to change. That could be something as obvious and severe as substance misuse, or something as subtle and seemingly trivial as technological attachment, such as I've been describing. But whatever it is, let's envisage it, commit to it and be very clear that the reason we're working the 12 steps around this particular issue is we acknowledge it's a problem. At this point, the step one juncture, that's all that's required of you. This is a problem, I want to change it. Just an honest acknowledgement of that. So take a moment Wherever you are in the world, not if you're operating heavy machinery, and that's not the ideal situation to conduct this course in, I may say. If you're driving a bus or a tube train or an aircraft, complete that, then undertake this course. Take a moment to acknowledge what is it I want to change. I mean, I might say, don't step one, don't fly a Boeing 747 while doing a self-help video. That's like a problem you can start working on in your life. So take a moment to acknowledge what it is you wanna to change, to make a commitment to it. So for me, as I've said, I don't wanna be dependent on my phone for approval anymore. I don't want my phone to be anything other, in fact, than a tool for communication. So now, right, from this moment on, far more when i filled in this worksheet, whenever I engage in that behavior, I will recognize, wow, because you know, like, I may not immediately change because this isn't as severe and pronounced as heroin and people relapse on drugs all the time. But once you've acknowledged it's a problem, once you've made that mental commitment, then you can never again undertake that behavior with the same kind of cavalier innocence. It's been clocked. You've grasped yourself up. You've acknowledged this is a problem. That's what step one is. It's the first step on a 12 step journey. This is a problem. I want to change it. Step two in the original form is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There's a lot to unpack in there, really. Firstly, the idea that we are acknowledging that our behaviour has been insane. Secondly, that there is a power greater than ourselves. That's an interesting thing to address because often unconsciously, while we're embedded in our problem, we're accepting and inhabiting this kind of odd negative omnipotence. I'm worthless, I'm a terrible person, my life is a mess, and yet somehow I'm the ultimate authority in my own life, unable to conceive even of a power greater than myself completely consumed by selfishness, completely consumed by self-centeredness. This is where the 12-step program, again, aligns with spiritual ideas that are uh, much older and much more mysterious, and in some senses allude to a potency that's here used in a very practical way, a power greater than ourselves, the acknowledgement that I am not the summit of all power. It's the teasing of the notion that there's somewhere to go, that there's somewhere to get to. Now, when I reinterpret the steps, step two for me was, could you not be fucked? Is is this all that there is? Are you doomed, Cain-like to wander the world, fucked for all eternity, cast out of Eden in your fuckness? But in the more uh, traditional version of step two, the evocation of a power greater than yourself is a beautiful and powerful thing. You know, it can be, and for me is, the idea of God, of ultimate power, of omnipotence, of ultimate grace. But more practicably, Someone said to me, and it's worth acknowledging at this point that everything I've got to say that's of any value was once said to me by someone else. And the stuff that sounds crazy, I'm probably improvising. Someone said to me, all this power has to do that's greater than yourself is move you from drinking all the time to not drinking all the time. Can you see people that are using this programme to not drink all the time? Have you met people that used to take drugs every day, continually, and now one day at a time never take drugs? Well, now, 16 and a half years into working this program around substance misuse, I am one of those people. I used to drink and take drugs every single day, but some somehow something happened on December the 13th, 2002, that meant that from that day onward, one day at a time, I didn't need to drink or take drugs. Now I apply this program in numerous areas of my life and every time I use it, It works. It's kind of like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Brazilian jiu-jitsu works. If it's not working for you, you're not fucking doing it properly. The results are in on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It works. It's the same with the 12-step program. If it's not working, you're not working it properly. Step two is about hope, whether it's hope that you can change substance misuse, hope that you can change the way that you treat your partner. Whatever it is, it's inviting and accepting the possibility of change, that there is a power that can change you from a person that drinks and takes drugs to a person who doesn't drink and take drugs, to a person who's obsessed about what other people think of you and don't feel good enough unless you get continual approval, to a person who can quite happily live without that. And here is another key component, one day at a time. None of us can ever attack the glacial edifice of forever. It's too much for us, not to mention it's an abstract concept. You will never be living the whole rest of your life in one particular moment. You will be living your life in tiny bite-sized chunks unless like me you occasionally try to inhabit the imaginary projection of forever an unbearable place to be and unlovely safari to find yourself in in your own mind. A power greater than myself has restored me to sanity. A power greater than myself can continually take me out of my madness and deposit me once again in a kind of simple comfort. It is possible for me to not be fucked. I've seen people that are terrible drug addicts stop taking drugs. I've seen people that Are obsessed with themselves and obsessed with sex, any of the numerous manifestations of the condition of addiction or attachment or whatever you want to call it can be addressed by using this program. So, step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There is a power greater than ourselves. We are insane. It's possible for us to change. It's a step that's based on hope. On your worksheets, you'll see that the first question is, do I need to change? In a sense, that's a reiteration of the step one principle, just to really goad you over the line there, just in case you've already taken step one, you've taken a deep breath, you've shut your eyes, and you've already gone, oh, fuck it, no, I don't need to change, I want to plow on. If you recognise that you need to change, that you want to change, that you've accepted that change is necessary, we're now creating the conditions for change to take place. The second question, do I accept that change means that I have to think and act differently? It's quite a difficult proposal to accept because I often want, when I say that, you know, often when I'm challenged by something, when I've acknowledged that I've got a problem, really what I want is my outer life to confer, conform to my wishes. I don't want to act differently. I don't want to think differently. But this program makes clear that I have a kind of personal authority and autonomy and that the responsibility for change lies with me. I will have to start doing things that I haven't previously done. I will have to stop doing things that I've previously been doing. It's a difficult thing to embrace. So when I notice myself thinking the same thoughts, like, oh, I want to look at my phone straight away. I want to see if there's been, you know, an email from another nation verifying me, showering me with digital self-validation. I have to think differently. I have to go, no, I've taken step one around looking at my phone That's something I'm powerless over and that made my life unmanageable. I don't want to do that anymore. Now I've come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, that it's not necessary, that I don't live in a universe without options or choices, that this is just the standard, that for me every day has to be the relentless march of glancing at the phone. I now recognize it's possible to not do that. So. I have to think and act differently. I have to move from a state where I'm dependent on that behavior to a state where I welcome the terrifying abyss of not knowing. You know, in a sense, all addiction and repeated behaviours is an attempt to provide a kind of regulation, a sort of self-evoked parentheses to hold me in the horror of this world, in a world that doesn't provide us with enough structures and systems and comforts. When someone said to me once, well done you, how clever of you to become a heroin addict, how you found a way out. You've found a way of dealing with your feelings. In a sense, any of us that have got some behaviour that's no longer working for us should be applauded for at least attempting to make life manageable. But the problem is, as we learned in step one, that behaviour is no longer working. It has to be arrested. It has to be addressed. Now, we tentatively, somewhat timidly, Embark on a journey of hope. It's pretty frightening. It's frightening to be a drug addict and put down drugs. It's frightening to be a codependent person and say, No, I'm going to relate to my partner differently now. These, these, changes mean that you are confronted by the fear that you were trying to avoid by indulging in that behaviour in the first place. That's why something as seemingly parochial and mundane as not looking at my phone, for me, can be a sort of, like, slices open the intestines of my self-obsession and dread of the world. Suddenly, here I am, eviscerated, confronted with, oh my god, the reason you were looking at your phone is because you can't bear to be you. The reason you're massive debating is because you can't bear to be you. The reason you're thinking, if I get that rise, if I get that job, if I make that movie, oh, it's because you can't bear to be you. And there's a reason that you can't be bear to be you. And that's because there is no you. The entire thing is a construct made up of biochemical drives and memory. Not that you're not a unique and wonderful human individual as unique as your own fingerprint. Of course you are. The whole point of 12-step recovery is to recover the person you're intended to be. That assumes that there was innate teleology that you were embarking upon as surely as a seed becomes a tree no one would question that ordinary miracle that encapsulated there within the acorn is the miracle of the mighty oak none of us questions that and few oak trees in their adolescent sapling stage have some overbearing father or negligent mother barking at them that they're too fat or they're not good enough or they'll never be as good as their brother tree the journey of recovery step two in particular takes you back to a place where you recognise that you were going somewhere that there is a better version of you this is the beauty and the optimism of this programme, that you are not worthless that your own belief that you are worthless is as much as an an illusion that you could make yourself happy with a life of endless Ferraris and blowjobs we know that's an illusion now particularly if you're a fragile and awkward driver such as myself I struggle anyway even when I'm trying to stay bang on that high code. A few twitches in the region of the groin is the last thing I need. Straight into the crash barriers. So step two is about hope. It's about positivity. It's the acceptance that there is a better you waiting to be born. Part of step two is having a conception of a higher power. That might be difficult for you because your previous experiences with God and religion and spirituality might have been negative you might have experienced so much pain and trauma and suffering in your life that the idea of believing in god now seems sort of naive and superstitious and there's been times in my life that i've thought that you know that religion is for sort of crazy white people and fragile mad frantic brown people religion gets bad pr the only time you encounter religion these days is someone has committed some atrocity or someone's not letting someone else do what they want in a bedroom or a clinic you know but this is not the religion or the spirituality that we're dealing with here this is re- this is spirituality as you understand it a power greater than yourself as you understand it this for me is not an opportunity to be glib you shouldn't be like nominating some ridiculous abstract caricature of god or some sort of simple obvious, dumb deity. Oh, well, could a power greater than myself just be this statue? No. It's, for me, this conception of God, this invitation to believe in a power greater than yourself, it can be very um, humbling because it's it felt to me like a return to a sort of innocence. You know, like most cynics and sceptics are wounded It's hard to once again, open your heart, particularly if you've just let go of a behavior or a substance that was holding your life together and stripped of that carapace, you're now being invited to open your mind to the possibility of a power greater than yourself. The important thing, of course, is it's not being prescribed to you. It's not some austere, patriarchal figure. It's not some hand-me-down deity from a culture that doesn't love you. It's simply a personal willingness to accept or even inquire into the idea of a better version of yourself, of a way out of a way out of the synaptic code, the neurological trap that you've been inhabiting that's no longer working for you. If that's, that could be something as disposable as I wanna change the way I use the phone. It could be something as life altering as I can't continue to drink or take drugs. Whether it's an overtly radical change or a small change as you continue your journey of self-improvement, Step two is a necessity, and an understanding and an acceptance of a power greater than yourself is a necessary component, but consider the alternative. But there is no power greater than yourself. Isn't that even more crazy that you've already fully inhabited all possibility? The sort of narcissistic whiplash of that, that this is the only you that you could ever be. That's more insane than the idea that there is a better you waiting for you to arrive. Step two, like much of the 12-step program, is a, a very broad spectrum. You could approach it with deep esotericism. You could spend time now contemplating the nature of God, the nature of being, the nature of consciousness. The possibility of migrating from one aspect of yourself to another. The idea that you may already be a kind of shell, that the pain, the call to arms that you felt and acknowledged in step one was merely the commencement of a metamorphosis. For we know, don't we, that the caterpillar don't merely sprout antenna and wings in that pupae, not poop pie, not some fecal pastry, no, in the cocoon. <laughs> that the caterpillar deconstitutes entirely, becomes as liquid, that there is a kind of death of the old self for metamorphoses to take place. Step two is about hope, just a gentle acceptance of fragile hope. Do these worksheets. Complete the step two worksheet and then spend a moment reflecting on the gentle possibility that you can become a different version of yourself, that you needn't continually be occupied by the thoughts that you've had, that you are more than a vessel for concepts and ideas, particularly if these concepts and ideas are painful for you. Step two is embarking on this journey with hope, with optimism, with the fragile belief that you may be beautiful, that there may be a wonderful life for you, that you needn't live in the tethered misery of post-enlightenment rationalism, if I may be so bold. We are born, we are material, we die, we live in a bag of skin, we are organs functioning in some delicate inner ballet that will one day necessarily end? What is behind this cosmology? What is behind it? How is the material world suspended, held, continuing? Is there a way that we can access it through ritual, through prayer, through practice? All we need to do is invite these possibilities into our mind to Let the drawbridge down to allow yourself to be bare to hopes, to dare to feel, to look for a moment beyond the fear of self-prohibiting belief and to accept that there is another way. This is where this program will take you. Spend a moment believing that it is possible for you to change. Then you will be ready to do step three. Step three is, are you on your own going to unfuck yourself? Or put another way, if the answer to your problems was in your own head, you would have found it by now. In the original formulation, step three is written, we made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood God. This is an acknowledgement that our plan is not working, that what we've been doing up till now, whether it's habitual drinking habitual drug use or obsessive looking at the phone is no longer a successful method for dealing with the problem of being you it's a willingness to let go of your plan the first three steps are creating the conditions laying the foundation for the more mechanized and dare i say academic aspects Of this program. Step four and five are about inventory and confession. But step three is an aspect of this program that I continually return to because whenever I've got a problem, whenever I'm in pain, whenever I'm unhappy, I have to at least be open to the possibility that the reason for it is that I think I'm in control of the universe. It's often that, whether I'm sat in traffic ranting and raving or if I'm trying to control my personal relationships, this s- mistaken belief that I am personally in charge of the world leads me to conflict and discomfort. Like So if, if once I admit there's a problem, it's possible that the problem could change. I'm now ready for a bit of a kicker. And that is that it's not me that's gonna bring about these new conditions, not using the techniques and methods that I've been using up to now. That's very obvious when, like, if your plan is, oh, what's your plan, Russell? Well, what I thought I'd do is I'd smoke crack and heroin every day and create psychological conditions I can live with. Is the plan going well? Oh, not really, actually. I've become unemployable (laughs) and no one can ever love me. Okay, and with a less obvious example, like the phone news, what's your plan, Russell? Oh, I'm gonna make myself feel good because hopefully someone on Twitter will have said that they like my hair. Is it working? Is is there enough compliments? Do we need to dig Shelley from the cold, dead earth so that he can write some ode to your hair that might finally fill you up? Or is your plan not working? Do you need another plan? Are you willing to? We know that I've admitted that there's a problem. We know that I've come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I've done those worksheets and you shouldn't be even watching this if you haven't done those things. So you're there too you've admitted you've got a problem, you know it's possible for that problem to change, and now we're ready to accept a new system. Now we're ready to step out of our previous modality, our personal Kubla Khan of domed authority, where we are our own personal Jesus, our own deity, Making free wishes to ourselves and never remembering to wish for infinite more wishes with the last one. Trapped in an infinite loop of misery. So for me, step three is essentially like, oh man. <laughs> As I wrote it, are you on your own gonna unfuck yourself? No, I'm not. I've looked at my life, I've seen what's going down. What happens is this, I have unfulfilling relationships, I get kicked out of jobs, I piss people off, I'm lonely, I'm unhappy. Now, like I've had the gift of living up till the point when I stopped taking drugs, a pretty extreme life. And then, bloody hell, to be honest, It continued being extreme because I was dealing with things like fame and celebrity, which, believe me, are pretty toxic and addictive in themselves. What is fame other than placing an image of yourself in the world and then having some relationship with this mad abstraction over which you've got no bloody control. Uh, But every so often, like all forms of addiction, throws you a bone, gets you into a restaurant and other forms of reward which hardly need further explanation. The evidence is that I need help. I need help. It's a It's a step that I've noticed people don't like taking. People don't like accepting that they don't have the resources to change their own life. People don't like being humbled. I suppose there's a correlation between humility and humiliation. I've experienced quite a lot of humiliation in my life. My life has led me to these sort of uh, junctions of despair where I've felt annihilated, and worthless, and I found it difficult to discern between humility and humiliation. The dictionary definition, and geez, why not go with that, of humility is awareness of one's relative insignificance. This needn't be a tool for berating the self, like oh I'm scum, I'm not good enough. It's just a kind of awareness that within the scope of the limitless, my hopes and dreams and aspirations and my fears and my self-flagellation and my self-loathing are not of absolute value. They are not sublimely valuable. They are not ultimately valuable. The humility becomes a kind of uh, fulcrum, a launch pad for a different perspective. The acknowledgement, the acceptance that my plan isn't working whether my plan is become famous, take loads of drugs, have loads of sex, look at the phone all the time, whatever this plan is, is not working. What's kind of beautiful is the recognition that the drive, the wanting, the yearning behind it is not inherently bad; that it's a kind of, in a sense, neutral force that we can guide and direct that of our own metal, of our own steam, we've not directed particularly well. Like myself, I always have a tendency to believe that other people's approval, money, fame, celebrity, power, prestige, privilege, these things will make me better. My experience is none of them ever do. And whenever I arrive at the desperation that I'm deposited at when all my plans go wrong, I I become once again willing to be taught. That seems to be my journey. For me, as soon as I succumb to pride and self-centeredness, I'm vulnerable. The journey is begun sooner or later. I'm going to be cut down. I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be hurt. Once I'm in pride, once I'm in ego, pain is coming. To have a more specific understanding of step three, look at your worksheets. Ask yourself, am I unsatisfied in my personal relationships? Am I unsatisfied in my work? Well, obviously at this point, we've admitted we've got a problem. We've come to believe that a power great in ourselves can restore us to sanity. And now we're starting to accept that we're going to need a new plan. That, this pl- that authority can be benevolent kind and compassionate, this is where this conception of a high power starts to play a significant role in our progress, a power greater than ourselves that isn't a negative authoritative power, not some personal despot that's going to ensure continuing punishment, but loving authority. It was only when I started working this program and started to attend support groups Based around the 12 steps that I began to encounter authority that was compassionate and kind. Mike's early life experiences of authority were either inefficient, negligent, incompetent, or downright malevolent. But when you're working a 12-step program, you are participating in a mentality and an ideology and a community that is about reaching beyond the self by its very nature. It's about overcoming the pitfalls of an egocentric lifestyle, of an egocentric worldview. So it's, a pl- it's safe to accept this plan. It, we don't need to have that kind of um, febrile, anxious resistance to other people's ideas that I know that I personally felt. My assumption was I can't trust nobody i can't trust nobody but the conditions and codes of the program that i had prior to working this program will become clearer when we apply the tools of inventory that step four and five comprise for now we're still preparing the conditions to embark on this journey that because that's rigorous the inventory process is difficult the inventory process is where this program becomes distinct from tools in personal development that I've found less effective because they've amounted to a kind of faith-based sense that, come on, things are going to get better, life will improve, be positive, all things that are necessary and helpful but are not administratively reliable. It's the pragmatism of this 12-step approach to spirituality that I like, even though I'm really down with the metaphysics and the reflection and the mental pirouettes and spiritual masturbations, is when it comes down to make an inventory. Let's try to truly understand what's been going on. Why have you lived this life? When have you stopped and reflected and looked at the conditions of your childhood, the actions of your adolescence? But before we get into that, let's become willing to accept another plan because this is the plan that we're about to put into action in steps four and five, all the way through to step 12. So we have to be absolutely sure that we have fully accepted, conceded to our innermost selves that we are no longer in control. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do because most people that I know who are declared addicts don't trust other people don't feel good enough, feel worthless. But the more that I've explored this program and its principles outside of the confines of acknowledged 12-step support groups, the more I've found that these are human conditions that most people are operating on a program of a kind. In fact, to be a human is to have a program. The personality in itself is a set of coordinates and beliefs, behaviors and systems that we live by. We're not choosing between having a program and not having a program. We're choosing between a conscious program and an unconscious program. We all have a program. We have the pro- program of our race, our class, our sex, gender, the time we were born in, our familial program, our social program. we been conditioned the very fact that you can understand this language is evidence of your programming a program is a deep code most of us are unaware of the way we've been coded unaware that if a particular person says a particular thing at a particular time suddenly we are incandescent the fuse has been lit you press my buttons easily if someone says the wrong thing to me or someone says the right thing to me, I'm an automaton. That's it. I'm like the, the action is set in motion. But this can be arrested and changed by admitting it's a problem, coming to believe that it can change, handing over my will and my life. There's no point in living in the suspension of, yeah, I know there's a problem. Yeah, I reckon it could become different, it could improve fuck you, I'm not willing to accept another plan. Step three is where a lot of people dismount, a lot of people disembark, because people don't like asking for help, people don't like accepting that, that well for me, the acceptance that my life up until that point had been a kind of mess was difficult, and to continue to accept that. You know, it was really obvious when I was dealing with crack and heroin, It's really obvious when I was dealing with like excessive promiscuity, less obvious when it was like, well, what do you mean I'm obsessed with fame and therefore self? These things keep re-emerging. They reform, they re-coagulate. You think you've dealt with addiction, you think you've dealt with the ego, but it re-emerges, it rebirths itself. The kind of, this sort of this, um, the zombie able to reawaken continually. It's very, very, difficult to keep a clear perspective. Impossible, I would argue. That's why step three is necessary. Because you begin to acknowledge, no, the problem was never external. It was never these objects that I was fixating on. It was the phenomena itself the craving itself, the self, the self-centeredness, the perspective from which I view the world is the very thing that needs to change. Viewing the world through a lens of ideas, a grid, an unconscious grid of perception. It's only when I'm willing to say, I don't want that anymore. I'm Okay. And like at first it feels phony. At first it feels like some facsimile, something that it feels like a pageant. But once you've taken step three, you realize that the pageant is what's being replaced, that the illusion is where you were previously living, that the self is the illusion. So <clears throat> by making a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand God, we are saying, I am willing to accept that the way that I see the world, that the thoughts that I think, that the actions I take may all be entirely wrong. This is a difficult point for alcoholics and addicts because we usually think, oh, I thought we were just going to stop drinking and taking drugs. Oh, no. No. That's merely the entry point to a journey that leads you to total surrender of the self. A willingness to say, the way that I approach relationships, the way that I approach work, the way that I approach thought is incorrect, in urgent need of amendment, requires surrender. People don't like doing it because essentially what you're letting go of is yourself and no one wants to let go of that, but that's what is required. That is the requirement. But so that it doesn't seem so overwhelmingly potent like some metaphysical tide sweeping you away into the limitless, spilled cosmos, let's break it down into some things that are a little more manageable, some simple interrogative inquiry. This is me and my silly little life. Am I suffering from misery, depression, unhappiness, or low self-worth? Yes! (laughs) That's exactly what it feels like. I've got low self-worth. Am I suffering from anxiety, doubt, or perfectionism? Perfectionism, that's an easy one to mask it all behind, isn't it? No, I just want things to be right. No, you don't. You want to be in control. You want to be in control of reality. You maniac. Have you looked at the Amazon? Whether it's on fire or not, it's beyond our control. Great infinite tundras of nature instantiating themselves without our will. Where is it coming from? Where is reality coming from? Where is it going? It's beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my understanding. And I, yeah, I'm trying to control it, like as if it was sort of dominoes, as if it was something simple, as if it was something that could be managed. How ridiculous it is to try and control our problems on our own, using the methods that have led us to the problem in the first place. I know what I'll do. I'll carry on. Any version of self-reliance is that. It's an inability, an unwillingness to step outside the sort of, cr- not crucible, the kind of, what do I want to say? Sort of like the limited pod of your own being, not accepting that the self is an event, not an object, that we are continual kinetic potential. Am I projecting imaginary future scenarios and worrying about them? Yes, I fucking am, that's all I do. I'm worrying about stuff, I'm fantasizing about something I don't want to happen and then living in that mad negative fantasy. Is it becoming clear to me my plan is not working? Yeah, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm willing to do this video on my phone. That's why I'm willing to sit and listen to this. This is why I'm willing to consider an alternative. Thankfully, this desperation has delivered me to a point where I'm actually willing to change. Like... Man, have you met happy people? I see them from time to time. I don't know the fuck to say to them, people that are together, that got their shit together. I'm amazed by them. I'm amazed by them. I sometimes don't feel like I have the fucking authority to conclude a conversation, let alone get engaged in some didactic self-help course. But the only thing that keeps me going is the knowledge that I'm simply a conduit for some information that's from elsewhere. And I don't even mean that in a mystical way, like, oh, the almighty, I am his vessel. although. I do mean that a bit. I mean that there is a programme that's already been written that works, that works for me for severe issues, crack addiction, heroin addiction, how many more fucking times, and also for minor issues. Because any of us that have gone through serious substance misuse discover, as soon as that's out of the way, that our behavioural addictions are ultimately just as painful. Is it clear that I need a new plan that is not sourced from my own head and drives if I'm to find fulfilment? Yes, this worksheet's easy. This plan of mine is like a mind virus of self-obsession. Can I surrender it? Am I open to a different plan? Am I open to being guided? I suppose a key component of step three is becoming willing to be teachable. (sighs) People don't wanna be teachable, do they? It's quite nice. Now I look for opportunities to be teachable in my life. I'm like, oh, please, teach me Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Teach me how to speak Spanish. Teach me anything. I put myself in the role of student continually. There is a kind of safety in it. There is a safety in this faith. There is a safety in this surrender. There is a safety from liberating myself from the prison of my individualism that I thought would ultimately bring me salvation. They say, don't they, Isaiah? I mean, he's not a they, he's a he, presumably. Uh, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I saw it on the wall, Brixton Prison, before I was about to do some poetry, man, in a prison. I wasn't in the prison as an inmate. I'm Let me urgently to you, Uh, disrespect if you are watching this in a prison, and I hope you are, and God knows I've met enough people that have come from behind the door, to use a bit of prison slang there, to a life outside of fulfilment. There is no full stop, there is no end, there's nothing that we've done that can separate us forever from God, but my point is that I was there as a tourist in the chapel, Brixton Prison, about to participate in some well-intended bit of nonsense, and nervous, anxious, before the performance Or a tablet on the wall I saw The verse from Isaiah, fear not for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. Fear not, I'm down with that. I don't want to live in fear anymore. I want to be free of the fear of the shame that that have defined me my whole life. Fear not for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. Redeemed I always assumed to mean redemption, salvation, forgiveness, but I understood that redeemed means can mean reclaim the same way that we would redeem a voucher. Fear not for I've redeemed you, I've called you by your name. Not, ooh, you lot, I've called you by your name. Russell, fear not for I've redeemed you, I've called you by your name, you are mine. The reason that we don't need to fear is because we no longer belong to ourselves. My life, I'll do what I want with it. Who told you it's your life? Where did you get the idea? This is my life. <laughs> these are my hands. These are my thoughts. These are these things that I've been given. This multi-million dollar, inconceivable machine I can control with my consciousness. It's mine. It's my life to do what I want. And what I've decided to do is some version of finding pleasure. Some version of accepting external cultural coordinates, a rubric, an external rubric designed by other people that are already dead that's perpetuated still and then I'll establish my own ideas of what my worth is in relation to those external coordinates. Culture is not your friend, culture is your prison. So I'm willing to be redeemed. I'm willing to let go of myself. I'm willing to become teachable because I've seen the results of my life. And if you are embarking on this course, then evidently you've seen the results of your life up till now too. You've become willing. You've accepted that you are powerless, that your life has become unmanageable. You've come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. And now you are willing to turn your life and your will over to the care of God as you understand God. And if your God is not a God that is benevolent and benign, then create one that is because WB Yeats said, all artists create their own religion will become an artist. Because what choice do you have? Create your own structures, your own culture, your own way that loves you. The beauty of the 12-step system is that there is no dominant didactic authority telling you how to be, merely the acceptance, the faith, the belief that within you, truer than the egoic construction of you, is a divine aware wisdom waiting to be awakened, waiting to be delivered. But before we can live some utopian life of bliss, and if you want any further evidence, look this way, there's a lot more work to be done, some serious inventorying, some acknowledgements of patterns, plots foibles and flaws that need to be exposed and undone and surrendered then you will see the damage done the chaos the wreckage of your life (sighs) once you've done some serious work in that area it becomes quite simple stay aware never switch off never go active never go back into it Through prayer and meditation, continually reach outward, outward, but inward, inward, no subject, object, suddenly beyond dualism, limitless oneness, limitless oneness, like I already told you. And there's no point realizing God only to sit around (laughs) like either in a cave living off a spoonful of rice a day or some other form of masturbation. Realize God to be of service realize God to realize that oneness. The reason that heroism looks so beautiful because in that moment of sacrifice, there was no me, there was no you. There is only the oneness. This can be realized through this simple system. What begins as a process of letting go of very obvious problems such as alcoholism or addiction or looking at your phone too much leads you ineluctably Inevitably, indefatigably, too, the realization that the, addict, the thing that you were most addicted to was the mirage of self, that there is no self there, the experiencer of self, the awareness, the consciousness itself. This is it. Uh, consciousness is not just one more phenomena, but the sea of all phenomena, and that we can access it if we free ourselves of the illusory beliefs that we are of some kind of solid mental object pecking through reality. Like a sort of hammer-nail relationship to the world. That none of it is real. None of it is real. So do your worksheet. Have a little sit-down and a little think. And then get back to me. Go and read some Sufism. Or some scroll somewhere. Unpack it, unroll it. And then, uh, you know, we'll see how we get on. But I tell you what, I've spent ages thinking about this stuff and it's... uh, I can't get beyond it, I can't get out of it. It will meet you where you're at. If you just want to approach this very simply, you can approach it very simply. If you want to wank around in the fucking outer reaches of the cosmos, I'll see you up there. Either way, the the results are the same. The reason that the outside world is a problem for you is because the inside world is a problem, but luckily it's a problem that you've constructed and that we can now dismantle.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com or follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. And make my mom proud. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.